0: That was a very warm welcome. Um, I saw Ivan Streen before I walked up here, and I don't know why, but he said, good luck. <laughs> so I feel a lot better now talking to Joe, and uh, you know, he's right. I, I, I know a lot of you. I've been very blessed to, to preach in Shoreline, to preach here in Simi. Uh, my kids know a lot of you, too, so they feel comfortable being here. Uh, and I just want to thank you so much for welcoming me into your church home and letting me speak a little bit. Uh, We're going to be talking today about perfect people in an imperfect world. What does that mean? Well, Christians are spotless, blameless, pure, but we are surrounded on all sides by a world that is jacked up. And it's a tense situation, isn't it? We're like soldiers trapped behind enemy lines. On all sides, we have people who live very differently than us, while we're called to a higher standard. It reminds me of a story that I read in the book Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. How many of the men have read that book? So you you may recognize this. He talks about the Battle of Normandy in World War II which is very famous because of movies like Saving Private Ryan. Less famous is the fact that many paratroopers had to parachute behind enemy lines the night before the storming of Normandy. The reason was they had to cut off any reinforcement troops that the Germans might be sending. So they paratroop in. It was the 82nd and the 101st Division. And I don't know much about military, okay? but a division, who, who knows how many is in a division? 15,000. So two divisions, 82nd, 101st, parachute in, and you've got about 30,000 troops behind enemy lines. And they had to do this the night before. And so what Eldridge is writing about is that many of them were extremely brave men to be doing this. Some of them were not acting so brave. They weren't rising up to their higher calling. Some, he said, fell asleep. They weren't ready for when the battle started. But the worst display was one that Private Francis Pallas saw when he heard some loud noises in a little farmhouse in Vereville. So he gathered together some troops to go inspect what was going on, thinking that he might find the enemy there. What he found in this farmhouse were soldiers from both divisions who had found liquor inside the farmhouse and were partying it up like a frat house On spring break. That is not perfect. (laughs) The point is that we have, like the soldiers, a pressure to be on duty at all times. We are engaged in a type of spiritual battle, and it's important that we rise to our calling. Maybe your duty isn't the same as everybody else's, Maybe what it means for you to be perfect in your life isn't the exact same as what it means for me to be perfect in my life. But we all have a higher calling. We all want to be excellent in our Christian walk. We all want to be excellent if we're in school to really rise up and get great grades. Or if you're athletic, maybe you want to really do great in sports. There are different things in different parts of your life that you may care deeply about. You may not like sports, you may love the academics, but whatever your thing is, you are called to be excellent in it. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. We're going to do two things today. We're going to get a handle on what perfection looks like in Jesus. And then number two, we're going to get a good handle on what a perfect walk with God looks like. And as you're turning to Matthew 18, verse 1, I want to tell you just just a little bit about myself and kind of how I define perfect. For me, Spock is my image of perfection. (laughs) Emotionless, precise. I like that. I get that. When it comes to communication, I like to know the blueprints. I'm not a, a naturally intuitive person relationally. And relationships can be a lot of guesswork. You have to read signs and body language. And that stuff drives me nuts. I, I need rules. And God, in his infinite wisdom, blessed me with an amazing wife who hates rules. Her favorite song is by King Tuff, Baby, Just Break the Rules, which if you want a taste of some hipster music, check that out. Just bought it, I just bought a record uh, on vinyl um, yesterday from. Anyways, a little taste of the hipster there. Um, every time I go to a conference, or every time I read a Christian book, you know what I'm looking for are the rules. I, I, I'm looking for the tips, the tricks, the, the methodology that I can put into practice. So for instance, one that works really well in communication is drive-through communication. It's not drive-by communication, that's a little more violent. Drive-through communication is like when you order food at a drive-through restaurant. You speak your order into the microphone, and then what do they do in return? They read it back to you. What I heard you say is blah 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 blah. So that's how drive-through communication works in a marriage. So I learn about this. I'm I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready to put it into practice with Amanda, my wife. So she talks to me, and I go. So what I hear you say is blah 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 blah. And then we talk a little bit more. And I say, so what I hear you say is blah, 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 blah. And I keep talking to her like this until she's finally like, stop saying that. <laughs> you sound like a robot. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> For me, being a robot is perfection. Um, and so the, the point of all this is just to say that you know I, I need to redefine what perfect is in my own life. Uh, I need to get a better handle on what perfect is, and we we all do. We all need to get a handle on what perfect looks like. So Matthew 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 here, where Jesus' followers were asking him, what does perfect look like? Uh, And so it says at that time the followers came to Jesus, and they asked him, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and stood the child before his followers. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you must change and become like little children. Otherwise, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The greatest person in the kingdom of heaven is the one who makes himself humble like this child. Let's break this scripture down a little bit, get into the meaning of it. So what we see at the outset is the disciples, the followers, are coming to Jesus, and they want to know, what does perfect look like? Remember that they're a mixed bag. There's all kinds of different people in Jesus' retinue. He's got the zealot, who's a political enthusiast, somebody who might think that perfection would be the liberation of God's people in Israel. You've got a tax collector on the opposite end of the spectrum who's trying to work out a relationship with the Roman conquerors. And maybe his idea of perfection is wealth, maybe personal wealth. You've got fishermen who maybe are just thinking about their families. And they're just humble, blue-collar guys thinking, look, perfection for us is just being able to feed our family and maybe pass a trade on to our kids. And so maybe they're debating this, and they're, you know, this is what perfection is going to look like in Jesus' kingdom. And they bring it to Jesus and they ask him, what does perfection look like? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says that the mark of greatness or perfection is to be like a child. I don't think they saw that coming maybe that's why he needed a visual aid like he literally brings a child so nobody can say did i hear you right (laughs) like a child and what's great about this is he doesn't even make it a competition it's not like he says you know a child is like slightly better than an adult and if we grade on a curve and you're kind of close then you're good notice what he says unless you change and become like a child you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not even a competition. There's childlike disciples and everybody else. You're either one or the other. So this is important that we get it. I mean, the word that he uses, you must change, is the same word as convert. It's the same word that's used when you have to do a U-turn. He's saying, look, we're all on this path of trying to achieve greatness by our own definitions of whatever that is, and we've all got to turn around and act more like children. (coughs) Think about that. The natural direction is for us to want to be older, younger. I feel especially for young people. That is what's being pushed. My kid, uh, my eldest is nine years old. And I remember when My Little Pony was her favorite show on television. She asks me almost daily when she will be old enough to watch Stephen King's It. (laughs) That's my bad. I showed her a trailer one time, I thought it would be funny. And now I have to wait for years as she asks me. But you know what it's like? Kids want to be older, younger. So like 17 Magazine for girls is not read by 17-year-old girls, typically. By 12 year old girls who want to be 17. That's how it was when we were kids. We wanted to be older. We wanted to be seniors when we were freshmen. And Jesus says we've got to change our thinking and be more like kids. Romans 16, verse 19, Paul says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. He's saying, You can know a lot about evil stuff, and that does not make you mature. You can be very wise and knowledgeable in what is evil. You can know how to get away with stuff, cheat, and bury your tracks. That does not make you mature. That's not a sign of greatness. Greatness is understanding with wisdom what is pure and innocent. Wow. Mm. You may remember a book maybe 20 years old now called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Right. Yeah. What a great concept. The really important stuff you learned when you were only 5 or 6 years old. Share. Mm-hmm. Share with everybody. A really wise person, the greatest in the kingdom is somebody who really shares with everybody, who isn't greedy, but is willing to give to those less fortunate. In kindergarten, you learn how to say, I'm sorry. How many of us are mature, and we say, I don't need to say sorry, because I didn't do anything wrong, (laughs) and we need other people to get involved in our mess to help mediate for us, because we haven't learned that simple concept. Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom is somebody who really knows how to be humble and say, I'm sorry. In kindergarten, you learn how to clean up after your own mess. You took the crayons out, you can put the crayons back. A lot of us as grown-ups are looking for somebody else to foot the bill, to clean up our mess for us. We're looking for somebody to pin the blame on for why we are the way we are or the mess that we're in. Jesus says the most mature among you is going to clean up your own messes. Perfection is being like a child. But we need to understand, too, what Jesus says is it's not just being like a child, because there's a whole lot of childish adults (laughs) who aren't great in the kingdom. (laughs) What he's saying is you have to be humble, like a child. So we need to talk about that. We need to make sure that it's clear. I want you to take a look at this statement that I'm going to put up, and tell me what you think about the person who said this. I only do what my daddy says this is bad luck brian (laughs) what would you think about somebody like that i only do what my daddy says is that a mature person is that a great person sounds maybe a little codependent maybe he needs to snip the umbilical cord i mean you only do what your daddy says aren't you an adult now But then take a look at what Jesus says in his own words. At numerous times, Jesus says exactly this. In John chapter 5, Jesus replies, I assure you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does these things in the same way. John 5, 19. I can do nothing on my own, I judge as God tells me John 5:30. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. John 8:28. Jesus gives us an illustration in his own life of what perfection looks like. The child likeness that he would have us imitate is a child likeness that depends on the Father. This is the mark of greatness. It's utter dependence upon God. That's the element of childlikeness we need to imitate. It's not all the immaturity stuff. It's the dependence. That's what we need to imitate. A walk with God is not about discipline so much as it is about dependence when we want to be excellent in our pursuit of god so often the thing we think is lacking is more discipline how many of us at some point in our life have said i need to get close to god i just need to be more disciplined I, I i need to you know be more disciplined get up earlier make sure that i'm just focused and disciplined What Jesus says is not so much about discipline. There's a lot of disciplined people who don't depend on God at all. But if you are completely dependent on God like Jesus was, you're going to go to him. Childlike dependence, something I want to park on for a minute here. Of all the illustrations Jesus could have picked of what we should be like, it's striking that it's a child because they're terrible. I mean, they're terrible at asking for anything. The way they ask has no tact. They'll interrupt you in the middle of church even. They ask for crazy stuff that you can't ever possibly give them. And then if you do give them something, a lot of times they're not even grateful. And like two minutes later, they're asking you for more. So when Jesus says, yeah, be like a kid, That seems like a crazy example. Uh, The way that kids speak, too, the the way that they just say mean things. I remember when I was just about 11 years old, uh, I had to stay with a daycare person. I I couldn't go home. And and her teen son just had terrible acne. I mean, it was like all over. And uh, I I was 11. I was like, what's wrong with your face? (laughs) I didn't know. I had no clue how hurtful that was. And he stormed off and, you know, got real emo about it. I feel <laughs> bad. But kids tell it like it is. They, they have no filter. They're super direct. And yet we oftentimes think of maturity as knowing how to be tactful. You know, the way that I'm going to approach you, I've got to really think about it. Jesus said, you know, you'd probably be better off being like a kid. The way that we live. Children, they're not always obedient, but they have no delusions about their need for a parent. Right. That's right. Kids can threaten all kinds of stuff. I can do this on my, my five-year-old son, Joel, when he was probably only about four, he was in preschool. I was picking him up after preschool and driving him home. And he said, I can run faster than the car. <laughs> And I called him on his bluff. I said, Really? You think he can run faster than the car? I will pull over right now. I want to see you run alongside the car. <laughs> and without missing a beat, he said, oh, Not right now. I'm tired. <laughs> He's a little delusional. But ultimately, he just needed to save face. In his heart of hearts, he knows he doesn't want to be outside of the car on his own. And that's what's great about children. That's right. They're not always obedient, but they understand they don't want to be outside of the car on their own. That's right. They need mom and dad. A lot of times we think greatness is being on our own. God forbid we ever say, I can only do what my daddy says. We're adults. Jesus is saying it'd probably be better to be more like a child. <laughs> so I, I need my daddy. Think about the people that Jesus chose to be his followers. Now think about James and John. They wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left in heaven. How arrogant. But Jesus picked guys like that because they were plain spoken and ordinary. These are the kind of people that Jesus wanted to build a ministry off of. Not because they were super disciplined or tactful, but because they were dependent like children. You think of Nathan. When Andrew approached him under the tree and said, you know, come, we have found the Messiah. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's rude. That's kind of racist, even. Jesus comes up and he says, here's a man who has no guile. He says it like it is. Like a kid. Like a child. You think of how they lived after Jesus rose from the dead. In Acts 4.20, we know that Peter and John were preaching powerfully, and they were brought before the council and told that they had to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And they said, who's going to be our judge? You or our Father? We have to do what our Father's telling us, and we have to keep speaking in his name. That's childlike. Dependence. I can only do what my father says to do. Now, where do we get off the rails? Where did we lose this childlike dependence? It's after our teen years, I think. Something happens in the teen years. And I don't want to say teenagers because a lot of times you guys get unfairly categorized. Like, oh, those teenagers, they don't understand anything. Like no, you guys actually understand a lot. There's been studies to assess risk and risk assessment in teenagers. The question being, do they understand the risks that they take? If a skateboarder wants to grind a rail, does he understand he can break his kneecaps? I mean, that's the parents' thought. Do you understand how much medical bills cost? <laughs> Kids are smart. They know. They understand it. But what's happening in the brain during the teen years is the oxytocin and dopamine centers of the brain. These are the chemicals and hormones that produce bonding in relationships. They are hypercharged in the teen years. So that what happens is if they can pull off a stunt and their friends cheer for them, it feels like they won the Olympics. So the risk is clear, but the reward is so great. As we get older, we don't feel the reward as much. We just see the risk. Okay, And this is God's plan, parents. This is God's plan for your kids so that they will take the risks necessary to move out of your house. If they were like us, they'd stay put where it's comfortable. (laughs) The other side of it too is is the the extreme hurt they feel when their friends betray them or slight them in some way. And and we who are older, we we can look down like, why are you so upset? Your best friend, what, just didn't say hi to you in the hallway and you're here crying on your bed? Like, what is wrong with you? Again, their brains are fine-tuned for those relationships. The hardest thing for us as parents is to understand that the main relationships in our kids' lives isn't us anymore. Yeah. It's their peer set. Yeah, right. And so what is crushing for them emotionally is when their peers disapprove of them. And you can, you can yell and scream and get blue in the face or red in the face or whatever color in the face you are, <laughs> and, and it doesn't affect them as much as when their friends hurt them. Right. And again, this is God's plan. This is all so that they will build relationships and eventually move out. (laughs) (laughs) There's one other developmental phase that's similar to the teen years. After your teen years, you you never really repeat that, that kind of phase. But earlier in your life, there's one phase where you go through something similar. It's the terrible twos mean to, I don't mean to insult te- any teenagers you're not like toddlers but in some ways you are like <laughs> two-year-olds what they do is they go through a phase of rapid development where they want to be independent am I right or am I wrong right. if you have a two or three year old <laughs> at some point they've said I want to brush my own teeth I want to put on my own clothes and you as a parent like you're terrible at this like they're inside out, and, you, you know, your, te- your breath still smells after you brush. Like, <laughs> let me help you. And eventually, terrible twos, terrible threes, sometimes terrible fours, they phase out of it. And they, they come back to this, this kind of mature balance where they're willing to let mom and dad do some things for them. They've learned enough independence to no longer be toddlers, but they've come back to a healthy dependence on mom and dad. You see, we need to be more like the terrible twos and less like the teen years, not teenagers, because I'm not singling anybody out, because it's the adults that we've all gone past those times. We oftentimes have not swung back to a healthy dependence on our Heavenly Father. We graduated out of high school. We moved out of our parents' houses and now we're independent and we haven't come back to our heavenly father and said, I still need you. That's, right. That's what greatness looks like. It's coming back to the father. Discipline is great, but dependence is what's going to keep you close to God. I'm not, I'm not saying don't be disciplined. I think it's very, very useful to wake up early in the morning and pray and read the Bible. I think it's helpful to set alarms on your clock so that you're reminded to pray throughout the day. A lot of times we just pray one time and think that's going to cover it. But see, that's the problem with discipline is you, you can be disciplined and still be independent. You can still say, I am doing all of this. It's up to me. I need to be more disciplined. You don't need to depend on anybody for that. You can read books to be more disciplined. You can get a life coach to be more disciplined. You can get a discipler to discipline you. That does not make you dependent. Dependent, like Jesus said, is something we have to change to really grasp. We have to convert. We have to turn around in our hearts and our minds to be dependent. And I want to share with you just kind of two stories from my own life as we start to close out here a little bit. On what dependence looks like in my life. Um, You've heard me speak a number of times. So many of you may know that I'm a recovering alcoholic. Through my teen years, uh, I was dealing with my parents' divorce, and the best way I knew how to do that was to medicate with drugs and alcohol. If you've never met an addict or you aren't an addict yourself, you may not understand that there's a difference between just heavy drinking and full-blown alcoholism. Um, Heavy drinkers, with sufficient reason, can put down the bottle and go on living a very healthy life. Alcoholics can't, and it's baffling. I had periods of sobriety, sometimes as long as 10 months, and I I would think, you know, my friends are drinking at a party, and I'll try one drink, and I'd be drunk for the next three months straight. I'd I'd start stealing from my parents. I'd steal from my friends. And and this was a pattern that happened over and over in my life until it completely shot through any confidence I, I could ever have of drinking responsibly someday as an adult. I'm 35 now. I still will not take a drink. I, I just don't know if I can do it. it. It'd be like wagering a million dollars on the chance of winning a penny. Right. Right. I put everything on the line for the chance of what? A drink? For me, I, I, I can't take that risk. If you can drink responsibly and you, you've got a track record, I'm not saying it's wrong. Just for me, I can't. So about 17 years old, uh, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous for about the fifth time. Um, and I tried to do the program the way it's, it's prescribed. And I, I got what's called a sponsor, which is like a mentor. Um, and I, I got a guy who had the most tattoos and the biggest you know, piercings in his ears. And I wanted a hipster to, decide, you know, to, to mentor me and sponsor me. And his name was Delbert. And he ended up being a real solid guy. Uh, He he said things that were similar to what you hear in discipleship. Unless you drop everything and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Except the way he said it was, you have to be willing to push a pile of dog poop uphill with your nose on a rainy day if I tell you it'll keep you sober. Okay. (laughs) I'll call your bluff on that. I don't think you're going to make me do that. But six months clean and I was doing it the way I was supposed to, and I told Delbert, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'm going to relapse. And he said, you should be. Because relapse is real. It happens to a lot of people, it's happened to you. And that needs to motivate you to be serious about your recovery. It was through that time I learned how to pray on a daily basis became a discipline in my life every day, but it was because I was afraid if I didn't have God in my life and I was not progressing spiritually, I would lose it all. Fast forward, 19 years old, I I get met by a disciple and I study the Bible and, you know, it's one of those things like two weeks, I'm baptized, it was great. I I wanted to move out of my mom's house because she wasn't a disciple at the time and, and there was a lot of friction in the home. I wasn't very humble, uh, even though I was baptized, and and she was worried about this new church I was going to, so we just kept butting heads, and I wanted to move out with the guys who baptized me, Jose and Steve, and we found this little studio apartment, you know, and we're thinking, we we can afford this. I'm working at Great Steak and Potato in the mall. I'm making some money, (laughs) and uh, we move out, and within the first week, they fall away from the church. They start drinking heavily, I found a, a pornographic video in my VHS, uh, which is how old uh, I am. <laughs> we had VHS, and uh, and it was a nightmare. And I talked to them, and I said, I, "I don't think it's a good idea for you guys to stay living here." And they had enough grace to say, "We agree," and so they moved out. But now I'm I'm on my own. Six months as a disciple, and I'm starting to worry. I'm starting to be afraid that it's all going to fall apart. I wasn't having consistent quiet times. I didn't have deep relationships. And I was convinced if something didn't change, I was going to leave God. And if I left God, I was going to drink. So I I made a a commitment. I said, I am going to have myself a quiet time tomorrow. (coughs) If I fail in everything else in my life, but I have a quiet time, I'm going to count it a success. Amen. That's the one thing I need. I am dependent on God. And I made that my commitment. And, and the next day came and I had my quiet time. The next day came and I had my quiet time. And I got consistent in that. Pretty soon, another disciple needed a house to move into. He moved in with me. I got hooked up with the chemical recovery ministry in our churches. Started going through that. I ended up moving into a campus household with about four other brothers, and they put me in charge of the house and the finances. (laughs) I met my wife. We started dating. We had a pure dating relationship. And the rest is history. But it started, I believe, with me saying, I need God. That's when things turned around. What is it that makes you dependent on God? You have something. It may be hard to remember there was some moment in your life where you said, I need God. And if you could somehow bottle that moment yeah. and just take a sip of it every day, you would have an amazing walk with God. Yeah. So I want to I encourage you to think about that. What is it in my life that just rocks me to the core and makes me remember I need God? If you can hold on to that, You can be a perfect person in an imperfect world. And I'll leave you with this. I just want to encourage you practically. because A lot of times we can hear lessons and kind of, oh, that was good. I like that point. You know, just go on with our lives. Talk to somebody at lunch today about this. Parents, if you've got teens, talk to your teens about this. Ask them, you know, what, what did you get out of this lesson? You know, are you wrestling with ideas too about being dependent on God? If you're single, grab another single person. Say, let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about this. Because it's not easy to get in touch with these moments. But I really believe if you can get a handle on this, on your absolute dependence on God, you can live a perfect life. Amen. Amen?